Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss the future of the beauty and wellness industries with the people who know them best. I'm your host, Priya Rao, beauty editor at Glossy, and today's guest is Nicola Kilner, the CEO of Desium, the abnormal beauty company. In this episode, we talk to Nicola about Desium's focus on transparency, the loss of founder Brandon Truax, and how key retail partnerships are driving the company's next chapter. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today on the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we have Nicola Kilner, the CEO and co-founder of Desium, the abnormal beauty company. Welcome, Nicola. Hi, it's good to be here. Good to have you. So, Nicola, tell us a little bit about the earlier days of Desium. You know, we've heard a lot about it now, and it's very much in the news, but what were the kind of early upstarts of founding a brand like this and founding a company? So I met Brendan when I worked at Boots in the UK. So I was working as a beauty buyer, and he was at his previous company, Indeed Labs. And I remember when you have, you know, one of those moments in your life where my life has just changed forever meeting this person. I remember his energy, his charisma, his kind of passion for doing good and really changing the the status quo of the industry. And I remember when he left Indeed Labs, almost being heartbroken, but thinking, this is so strange, you know. I don't know how I could just be so in awe of this person. And so he left Indeed Labs and he got in touch with me to say, I'm starting something called Desium. I want to do 10 things at once. Um, And at that time, we started talking because I was still at Boots as a buyer. And growing up, I'd always wanted to have my own business. Um, And I'd had a thought about a different business I wanted to do, which um, I don't know if you find it. As soon as you work in the beauty industry, you have all of your friends and family asking, you know, what's the best mascara or what's the best kind of serum, etc. So I wanted to create something. It was going to be called Beauty Wise, um, which was effectively for all of those reviews. So Brandon was like, well, let's do that together and do Desium together. So I was like, that sounds amazing. So I left Boots. Um, but then naturally, Desium started to be this crazy roller coaster. So we were like, do you know what, beauty-wise, we got quite far. The designs are there and the infrastructure and software is part built. But we kind of put that to the side because we were like, actually, let's just go on this kind of Desium journey. And I remember, you know, the the early days when we would get a purchase order and we'd say yes to taking the order but we wouldn't have the means on how we were actually going to fulfill the order so we would be working in the factory all night Um, and again I remember you know some of the machinery we couldn't afford all the automated machinery so I remember for example with our tubes on hand chemistry which was one of the the first products we launched back in 2013 and I remember we um uh, our retailer told us oh, a few of the the tubes were exploding because we had a hand crimping machine. So me and Brandon would be on the the machine at night hand crimping the tubes. But then we realised we had to have someone else stood there who would just squeeze the tubes to see if any of them exploded. And so, you know, the early days were kind of full of memories like that, which now when I look in our, our facility where we produce the products and everything is automated and kind of state of the art machinery, it's just a million miles from where it where it was. But, you know, the startup days are full of of love and you have every hat on from if the floor needs cleaning to you need to meet an investor. You kind of do it all and you just have to adapt to all of those roles. Um, and I think the other thing which was kind of a, a part of being a startup, but I think it's something that really made Desium what it is today, is 
it was difficult to afford to hire anyone with experience because, you know, in many ways you want to hire experience, then you see salaries of people who deservingly have been in their roles for many years and kind of worked up their career. And it's hard as a starter to actually, well, you just can't afford those costs at the end of the month. So actually the kind of strategy was, you know, let's just get people straight out of school and college and people that are just have passion and have ideas and don't have any boundaries and they don't have any preconceived um, perceptions around the beauty industry or the way things should or shouldn't be. So we kind of fell into that as our kind of HR strategy not through choice, but just through kind of survival. And actually, it was the best thing we could have done because part of the reason I think we were able to disrupt the beauty industry was almost because we didn't have anyone from the beauty industry telling us, well, this is the way it should be or this is the way it shouldn't be. Talk to us a little bit about that disruption because so much of it was about, you know, transparency around ingredients and transparency around price, which now people throw around a lot and isn't very transparent. But back in 2013, it probably was. And I think actually, I mean, one of the things we did that was um, disruptive and allowed us to kind of do what we did was by bringing everything in-house. So one of kind of Brandon's frustrations was, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs or beauty entrepreneurs again because of a challenge of resources they end up having to outsource everything you have to outsource design and PR and manufacturing and formulations and Brandon really was passionate about bringing it all in-house because he said actually if we really understand every part of the ecosystem and we control every part of the ecosystem we can rethink the way that everything is done um, and we can really have a team who are committed to doing things differently and feel part of it and actually all working together all in the same office all you know having coffee together having lunch together and actually kind of you know really having those worthwhile conversations and kind of challenging the status quo so I think having that ecosystem was one of the first things we did and it's also part of what made it so easy to be transparent because we had control over everything And it's easy to be transparent when you don't have anything to hide. So because we knew exactly where our products were formulated, we knew exactly where they were manufactured, it was easy to actually invite press in, invite customers in even. You know, we'd have customers coming to to our head office in, in Toronto on Richmond Street and they because they would go on the internet and they would almost think it was a store because it would kind of come up Desi um, with the, the office address. And they would arrive there and we'd be like, well, look, we can kind of still do your your order. We'll just do it as a, an e-commerce purchase. But then come and have a look at the factory in the lab and actually kind of see see what DCM is. So I think transparency for us was an easy thing to do because we did do everything in-house. And then, you know, in probably more of the latter years, especially with the ordinary, it's something that we really took to the consumer. Um, and the consumers just they almost drive our transparency because, you know, now if you look on our on our website for every single product we have, the pH of the product, is it gluten-free, um, for example? But this is because this is what the audience is asking us. So the audience almost continue to, to drive our transparency even further. How difficult is that when you have so many brands within your portfolio and then obviously so many products with each of those brands? Um. I almost think it makes it easier because, again, you know, it's one of the things where within the brands, there's learnings that we take that we can apply to all the brands. But then also each brand has its own unique identity and things that we we kind of like to keep special to each of the brands. Um, so I think kind of it's transparency is something we have at our umbrella level. So, you know, Desi and we have Normal Beauty Company. 
we believe in transparency. Therefore, any of the brands in our portfolio, we make sure we're being transparent to our audience. And again, they're all manufactured in our, in our facility. They're, they're kind of formulas are done in our lab. So it's something that is common amongst everything we do. So Nicola, obviously it's been a difficult couple of months for the company um, with Brandon's passing. How has that affected, obviously, the company culture, your role, and, you know, the future and legacy of the company? So I think, you know, it was sadly quite public, everything that happened in 2018 was the the year from hell for any any business, but for any team. And again, being being a startup and a particularly for a company founded by Brendan, we, you know, many companies say they're kind of family values and family driven, but we really were a family and Brandon was kind of the father figure, the father head of our family. Everyone had so much love for him and when you when you see someone you all love so dearly struggling and actually you're all powerless to do, you know, everything possible was done behind the scenes to try and kind of help help in, in, in every way possible. The team are more resilient than ever and we're more committed than ever that actually Brandon had an incredible vision. He believed in doing good. He believed in always doing good by our consumers, by our team, by people that used to you know, support us. And we will continue his legacy more than ever. He believed in honesty, transparency. He always believed in science. Um, he believed in kind of pushing boundaries. You know, he always used to say, we kind of want to be on the edge. It's careful not to go over the edge, but let's kind of get as close to the edge as possible. And we still live and breathe his values every day. You know, he was a true believer in authenticity. Um, he was passionate about design. We kind of keep all of those principles he had. And, you know, we continue to also look at the future. And, you know, certainly something that's important to me is kindness. I very much believe kindness is the modern cool. Um, so that's something that I now kind of make sure that when we look into the future, and especially, again, I'm forever in gratitude for how our team really kind of stood by and, and kind of made sure Desiem survived what we went through and that we continue to kind of build on Brandon's dream and his vision. Um, so I'm forever indebted and, you know, for me, the best way to kind of repay any team is to always treat them with kindness. When you think about the public perception of all of this and obviously, you know, the comeback stories, you know, all of mm-hmm. these things, you know, has that been difficult or has that, you know, been challenging when you know the business is doing great and you know expanding and growing so significantly you know we were very fortunate that the the majority of the audience su- supported us again more than we could have ever have asked for they were patient you know things were were hard and it was hard for people to see it, especially when you know what's out in the public eye is only a tiny fraction of what's really happening um so it's the audience have been such a huge part of our, our journey and, you know, even outside of everything that kind of happened with Brendan, the audience have grown us from, from day one. And Brendan actually used to say, you need to first get a thousand people to love you for a million people to like you. And, you know, in those early days, it was difficult, but, you know, we really found those people that loved us and actually kind of saw what we were doing and kind of really believed in kind of the journey and kind of what we wanted to, to do in the industry. Um, and then, you know, that kind of spreads and suddenly you get kind of word of mouth growth, organic growth. And, um, you know, on Facebook, there's a group called The Ordinary um, and Destium Chat Room, which I think has got about 80,000, maybe even 90,000 members in now. And that's just an organic customer group of people who just love talking about the products, the ingredients. Um, so the audience has really been a key driver of, of our brand and success to date. 
So many of your product launches and obviously brands have been the response to those customers. When you've gotten bigger, how has that customer data, that engagement changed when you're kind of faced with so many more people, so much more information, obviously so many more retailers? So we always love to listen to our audience. You know, they we wouldn't be here without them. And we always want to make sure we're kind of fulfilling what they want um, so we have very close relationships between so our customer happiness team who um, work on kind of all of the emails on the phones talking to our customers and they get the feedback from the stores team and the social team and they regularly feed that into our lab team um, and our brand team to make sure that actually we're really listening to what the audience want to make sure that we can deliver that in future products and future innovations or maybe it's future communications so again if someone's if we have a group of people asking for the same thing we're transparent enough to know that actually we can give them that information. We can kind of find a way to kind of um, surf whatever whatever they are desiring. When you think about your new brands that are coming up later this year, as well as new products, how are those how are those communications coming to life? Um, so we we're actually just developing a brands team um, in kind of the the full structure, I guess, and how other companies might more traditionally work. And again, it's a challenge between. We have 800 employees now and we've kind of grown so quickly, but it's a case of trying to put the infrastructure in place, but keeping what's so special about us, which is the fact that we can be very nimble. We work very quickly and really the kind of whole new new product development process really is, you know, I'm very heavily involved. Pridvi, who's our chief science officer, is very involved. We have Dion, who kind of heads all of our brands, is very involved and kind of the creative team. And, and you know, that's kind of the, the core team who's always been there to kind of look at new brands, products, and, and actually all aspects of them because, you know, it's just as important that the lab are aware of how we're planning to communicate it because sometimes they give us ideas because actually they know exactly something super cool about an ingredient or how it's formulated or kind of where something came from um, and to make sure that actually we are, we're kind of doing the product justice and we're, we're being truthful and we're delivering that in the, in the, in the right possible way. You know, the ordinary is the is the brand within all of your portfolio brands that kind of gets the most play or the most attention. Um, you recently relaunched at Sephora. You're going into Ulta very heavily as well as Boots in the UK. So can you talk to us a little bit about that kind of like expanded distribution, how that is obviously fueling growth or fueling this brand particularly? Well, the first thing I should say on The Ordinary, so Decium was about building 10 brands at once and The Ordinary was our 11th brand to launch. So when people tell you to kind of be flexible with your principles, it's a good job we were, otherwise The Ordinary wouldn't exist today. Um, so in terms of our kind of expansion, um, so the US, you know, most companies get to kind of where they are today through a strong US business. And actually we are very fortunate to kind of have incredible growth but without really touching the US so we um, have got our team in place which is led by the incredible Dakota um, and actually really working on our expansion so when we look at distribution you know we look at a few a few different channels so we have obviously our online direct to our consumer we have our own stores which you know here in New York we have uh, seven stores uh, we've got 32 stores in total um, and then we also need to look at third-party retailers because they help us you know we want to be accessible and we can't open stores in every city around the world so we need good partners to help us kind of reach our audience which is where both Sephora and Alta come in. So Sephora at the moment we're online only um, but again they have amazing delivery and um, propositions we know they've got great loyalty and they 
you know, reward their, their consumers for, for shopping there. And then Ulta, so we just launched online at the beginning of July and then we go into stores in August. Um, so we're going into 400 stores, so a really good distribution across um, the US. And then with Boots in the UK, you know, it was a it was a hard one. And the, one of the things the ordinary really did was kind of redefine that price point doesn't define luxury. Because when we look at the price point of the ordinary, you know, the retail start from kind of four or five pounds dollars so from that perspective you would expect to go into boots and kind of see us in the in the masking care aisle and it was something we were always adamant around you know if we go into boots or we go into anywhere we need to sit in the premium beauty hall and that's because education is so important to us and we want that space and you know the flexibility of the merchandising to be able to really communicate that. Um, so, you know, in the UK, we have incredible distribution online uh, with some of the premium department stores, so Harvey Nichols uh, launching with Selfridges. And then Boots really helps us to expand in bricks and mortar, but to, to some of the cities we're not in because they do have such good coverage of the UK. When you think about Boots specifically, you know, obviously, you know, they maybe conceived or perceived as um, what would be a drugstore here in the U.S., but they also just elevated their whole beauty experience. So how are you kind of like merchandising there versus how you would say merchandise in Selfridges? Is it the same? Is it different? Um, so it's slightly different. So um, both of them have kind of bespoke built counters for the ordinary um but it always just comes down to what space the retailer has so it's kind of always that million dollar question when we kind of have those conversations with buyers to understand you know we want to be productive because the worst thing that can happen for any brand or any retailer is when you're as a brand if you're if you're taking up space and you're not doing the dollars per inch or however it's calculated you need it puts horrible pressure on you that can then force the wrong decisions because you know then you have to start thinking about do we need to discount do we need to do this and and as a brand that's the worst possible place you can be in so for us we always always would prefer to start with a smaller space prove our productivity and then and then build up from there so again actually this was something leonard lauder said which i think i truly believe in it's always let um, demand lead supply and I think that's a really important thing so actually making sure that we have the demand there so that we can deliver on sales before we kind of start to expand those spaces. When you think about Ulta specifically you know obviously they have a slew of stores here in the U.S. and the 400 that you mentioned is a fraction of that but you know talk to us a lot about those customers and those stores because you know so much of the proposition about Alta that's so attractive is that it is in the middle. It is the middle of the country where everybody shops. And that might be very different than, say, you know, an elevated shopper in Boots or Selfridges. And I think, you know, the ordinary, it is about accessibility. We have created, um, and I say we've created, I mean, we just took incredible skincare ingredients that have been out there for, for actually quite a while. We've made them fair prices we have been transparent in our communication about kind of the ingredients, the percentages, how they work. And the audience is really related to that. And actually, it doesn't matter if someone's in New York, LA, Texas, Kentucky, like they just want great skincare. And, you know, it's actually a privilege as a company to be able to kind of bridge those gaps to say, actually, we're all humans. 
we all care about our skin and actually it's great to see you know it almost feels a bit of a, a trend at the moment that people are starting to to actually prioritize skincare over cosmetics and um, which just feels a really good place to be in and um, so for us it's important that actually it doesn't matter where you were born or where you live if you want great skincare we want to make it accessible to you when you think about other distribution channels, like, is there anything else? I mean, would you be in Target? Would you be in Walmart? Would you be, you know, in a CVS at that point? Because, I mean, with, with that example, I mean, potentially you could be. Potentially, yes. Yeah. So at the moment, we haven't um, we haven't kind of looked any further um, as such. And again, we do our own manufacturing. And if you looked at our supply for the last couple of years, it has honestly been terrible. <laughs> you you can probably hear a lot of people that said, oh, I love this product, but I can just never get it. So it's taken us quite a bit of time to actually increase our manufacturing to get our production to the level it, it's needed. And um, that being said, it kind of takes us time to plan. So I think once we've kind of gone through the expansion with Sephora, with Ulta, we're doing lots of great things with Douglas in Europe as well. And um, so I think we would need to kind of expand our um, manufacturing facilities before we considered any kind of further distribution but again it's you know one of the things we're quite keen around is it's kind of breaking barriers and kind of preconceived ideas and we almost like to be the rebels so we do want to be accessible and we are a believer of being accessible and, and not using price point to define where things belong. Um, so, yeah, so kind of the, the world's still open, but definitely for the next couple of years, our building out infrastructure, I think, at the moment is enough just to support the likes of kind of Ulta, Sephora and Douglas. Can you talk a little bit more about that, just about the manufacturing piece of it, just because I think it's something that people don't really talk about a lot here with us. But when you think about, you know, people have said that you guys, you know, hit $300 million in sales last year, and that's with, you know, product not always being available. When you think about what the growth trajectory you could have, I mean, how do you invest smartly to achieve that? So, you know, we we have this dream that we can become a billion dollar a year business which i'm very confident we can we can get to we have an incredible coo in the name of stephen kaplan who you know i like to think he he takes and i hope i don't offend anyone but i call it all the boring side of the business <laughs> he looks after all of the operations and finance and legal in that side and i get to focus on all of the the brand side and you know PR and communications and social and, and retail partnerships, etc. So I think I get the fun side, but he really is kind of the backbone of the business. And he um, works very hard in actually understanding our forecast and actually understanding what it means to each of the teams. What resource do we need? How do we look at, you know, if we're getting our, our next manufacturing plant, does it make sense to have another one in Toronto or do we do one in Europe? Do we do one in kind of West Coast of the, of the US? Um, so he really looks into the detail of all of those things to make sure that we're, we're kind of looking at least five years out for our expansion. What about your more curated concepts? I know that you guys are working um, with Club Monaco and some shop and shops and then also expanding your own um, storefronts as well. What does that kind of balance out to the rest of the larger pie? So interestingly, with the, with Club Monaco, we've actually found that we, we do really good partnerships with fashion retailers. So actually ASOS is one of our largest accounts. We, I think they ASOS sell ordinary product every 30 seconds um, and again I, t I think it's a one in 10 of their shipments contains the ordinary which is just amazing and um, so again I think it's just that 
when we talk about redefining stuff, you know, beauty doesn't just have to be in the beauty hall. By making it accessible, we can go to fashion retailers and other places where, you know, we know people are going who, again, humans want great skincare. So let's just go where humans go and kind of rethink all of the, the traditional um, elements. What about the other brands within the portfolio? Is there a lot happening with them on each of their fronts? There is. So we actually have a couple of new brands launching this year. So we have Hippu launching, which is our baby brand. Um, and as the mother of a seven-month-old baby, I'm personally very um, excited for, for that brand to come. We then have Lufa. So we launched one product from Lufa last year, but we, we haven't really launched the brand in full yet. So that's also coming at the end of this year. And then within all of the brands, there's lots of um, innovation. So within The Ordinary, we are expanding into concealers. We've got our watercolors coming um, eventually this year. Neod were working on lots of new reformulation so um for us at decium we would kind of tell everyone that neod really is the crown jewel and um, which people people think it's the ordinary but actually neod is the one that we're most proud of it's really the 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 brand that it's groundbreaking in its technology it stands for non-invasive options of dermal science and we truly believe it's around pushing the boundaries constantly you you look at your iphone from five years ago very different to your iphone today and actually the world of skincare technologies moves along so much that neod's about always keeping at the forefront of that um so Neod has lots of new technologies coming to light lots of reformulations relaunches of products which is exciting when you think about, obviously, skincare is booming right now and continues to trend upwards, you know, have you ever thought about, just when you mentioned concealers just a second ago, you know, playing more in the color category when the pendulum slips the other way? So with color, so we, we already have foundations in the ordinary and we all expand a little further, but it's, we'll never have a, a full color line. It's just... It's not a speciality, you know, when when it came to foundations, we actually, I remember there was almost a bit of friction with the lab because they were kind of like, we don't want to do foundations, like we, we love looking at things differently and actually really challenging it and we don't just want to make a foundation. But then we challenged the lab to say, but do what you always do and actually forget what your any preconceived idea might be and when they then started to understand that actually the skin constantly has these micro vibrations and then actually they the way they could kind of build this matrix within the foundation that would almost adjust with those micro vibrations that we can't even see on the human eye then it became a really interesting angle to them and actually because of that you know the foundations really do help the skin look flawless because of the way this matrix works um so if there's ever an area where they can really use innovation and technology to move things along then then they're always excited but we we won't get into kind of a full cosmetic color range and um, just for the sake of doing it and I guess lastly Nicola when you think about you know the direct-to-consumer business which has been a huge part of your growth and your growth story you know how does that play with these third-party channels and your own channels like what is that split what's growing faster what's accelerating so Around this time a year ago, direct consumer was 50% of our business, but it wasn't necessarily a good thing. And, and the reason why it was 50% was because we just did not have anywhere near enough stock to supply everyone. It almost became that our website was kind of last man standing. So it was always kind of the first one to kind of get the stock because we were kind of like, look, if we can just at least keep one place in stock of everything, it will be helpful for the consumers. Now, because we're getting into a, a better place um, with our production and with our stock, it means we can actually serve our retail partners a lot better. So actually that 
in turn is better for the consumers because, you know, we were a brand first and not a retailer. Like a retailer is something we do, but actually we're a brand first, retailer second compared to the likes of Ultra and Sephora who are retailer first. So from that perspective, you know, the the traditional retailers will probably always have better delivery service than us, you know, especially in the UK now. Most of our online retailers, you can order at midnight and you get shipment the next day. That's something we won't be able to promise as a brand for a long time because it's just, that's not our bread and butter. Our bread and butter is creating incredibly science products at fair prices. So from that perspective, we we like our retail partners having a good share of the business because again, we think it's probably what's in the best interest of the consumer uh, to allow them the right accessibility to buy from their preferred partners if they're in loyalty schemes, etc. Um, so we'll continue to expand our own stores um, because, again, what we like about our own stores is kind of the experiential, the fact that someone can come in and have a really in-depth conversation with someone who's trained to advise them about the different retinols, the different vitamin Cs and how to actually build a regime. Um, so we have 32 stores at the moment and we're looking at opening stores in Hong Kong in LA so kind of lots more expansion to come and online will always continue to be you know a strong pillar of the business but then actually making sure that we do continue to become more accessible globally through partnerships with the likes of Ulta, Sephora, Douglas Boots etc. Nicola that's so honest and such a different perspective than a lot of other brands that come on here especially if they're direct to consumer first or they started that way because it seems like that there is this rub right now whether it's the margin conversation or the customer data conversation that you have to go into retail just as a a scale mechanism versus you know that it's actually satisfying what the customer wants. How do you um, not you know, lose sight of that when everybody else kind of in the space is like, oh, I'm going to launch with a retailer because X, Y, and Z. It's interesting. We we often have a saying that we we almost use common sense. And I don't mean that to kind of sound derogatory to, to anyone else or, because that's not how we mean it, but it's almost a by kind of taking a step back. And actually, a lot of our team are somewhat inexperienced and that's the best experience they could have because you do the things that just make sense. So, you know, take the ordinary. We, I always use an example. If you look at healthcare, if you have a headache, you would go and buy aspirin. And you know, you know, you might go and spend $4 on some aspirin. But you would never walk into CVS and see aspirin for $4, $40 and $400. It just couldn't exist. But even though you're only spending $4, you know that aspirin is safe, it's effective, it's proven, it will, you know, help improve your headache or whatever you're going for. Yet when you used to walk into a beauty hall or, you know, many beauty halls still, this is the case, you walk in and even as someone who works in beauty, it can be very difficult to understand well, what am I really buying? You know, the, the names sometimes can be a bit fluffy rather than actually kind of factual like you get in healthcare. But again, that was almost approach, which for a lot of our team, it was just the, it just made sense to do that. And likewise with the pricing, it just made sense that, look, these ingredients, just like aspirin, they've been around for a long time. We don't need to do that much of our own testing because, you know, it's accepted that vitamin C is a good anti-aging and brightening ingredient. Um so we almost like to think that kind of our lack of experience in some ways allows us to actually just do things that make sense to the to the every person. And do you ever worry about like losing that customer data or losing that customer relationship, which so many of these other D2C businesses are afraid of when they partner with retailers? 
I have to tell you, we we don't even we don't use data that much in terms of even now I couldn't tell you the average age of the ordinary consumer, for example, because we've always just been in this mindset of let's just create beautiful things, let's just do the right thing, you know, we try and inspire a human world of beauty. And we kind of feel if if that's our vision, then actually it doesn't matter what age is, we're we're about mindset, someone who who likes what we do will come on the journey with us. And if we suddenly became focused on maybe our average consumer is 28 years old, well, we might alienate an amazing 88-year-old who wants incredible skincare. So we like to think that we are accessible for everyone. And, and I guess that's sometimes the challenge of, of sometimes understanding that relationship too much can have downsides as well. For sure, for sure. Nicola, when you think about um, what else is coming up, which is obviously you have a lot lot on your plate right now, but is there anything else that you're looking forward to throughout the rest of this year, early 2020? Yes, so in Toronto, we're moving to our new headquarters in September. So it's a 70,000 square feet facility. Uh, The designers have done the most incredible job. It looks stunning and uh, it's going to have a huge um, lab so we're expanding the lab by about five times to what our current lab is um, and I mean we already have 41 people working our technical science teams so that will continue to grow uh, it will have a manufacturing facility within the head office as well and uh, we'll have a store in the head office that customers can come in and use um, and it's just this amazing space which I think will continue to kind of inspire this kind of innovation creativity and um, it means a lot that actually Brandon found the the space and I spent many times with him going to the space as kind of visioning what it could look like so it's nice to feel like he's still a part of our future home as well. So are you going to be making five times the product as well? (laughs) Hopefully that's the plan. Perfect thank you so much Nicola it was great having you. Thank you Priya it's been a pleasure.